So that's, that's part of the problem. But I think also you've got um, a religious illiteracy in Australia. And it's a similar kind of problem in the sense that people just don't encounter or study or seek to understand religion. Welcome to The Political Animals. I'm your host, Jonathan Cole. I'm Assistant Director of Research at the Australian Centre for Christianity and Culture at Charles Sturt University, and I work in the field of political theology, the intersection of religion and politics. Joining me is Dr. Michael Gladwin, who is Senior Lecturer in History at St. Mark's National Theological Centre, also at Charles Sturt University. He is a graduate of both the Australian National University and the University of Cambridge, and he specialises in the religious and cultural history of Australia and the British Empire. He is the author of a number of books, including Captains of the Soul, A History of Australian Army Chaplains, and also Anglican Clergy in Australia, 1788 to 1850. And finally, he's currently working on a, a book, which will be a history of the Bible Society of Australia. Michael, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Now, Michael and I are going to have a conversation about the role of Christianity in the settlement and foundation of Australia. As a way of introducing this, this topic, I'm just going to lay out a few facts about the First Fleet. I don't know when you first heard about this. If you're Australian, you probably have never heard about it. If you're an international listener, I remember being in primary school and <laughs> going, <Me too. laughs> going into great detail about every aspect of this in a nutshell, the first fleet was, uh, I think it was about 11 vessels which set off from Portsmouth in England in 1787, carrying about 1,400 souls, a mixture of convicts, sailors, soldiers, officials and their families. And after an eight-month uh, voyage of a lot of hardship, they arrived in Botany Bay in what is now Sydney, thus beginning the European settlement of the nation that would become Australia. Now, obviously, these settlers who travelled right across the other side of the world in very peculiar circumstances as far as <laughs> colonisation goes, it must be said, given it was a penal colony that the British had decided to set up here, they brought many novel and new things to this island continent. But one of the really important things they brought, and something I don't think a lot of Australians appreciate today in our highly secularised or secular uh, society and culture is actually Christianity. So, Michael, to begin our conversation, uh, in what sense did the First Fleet bring Christianity to Australia? And in what sense could the colony of New South Wales that they began and the subsequent colonies that followed soon after, in what sense could we think of those and describe them as Christian colonies? Yeah, well, there's two senses in which Christianity was brought to Australia. There's the physical sense in terms of hundreds of books there was a whole lot of literature that was brought uh, in relation to uh, manners in relation to guides to conduct you had some bibles being brought as well and that was under the oversight of a chaplain there was one colonial chaplain there was originally no intention to bring a chaplain with the first fleets but uh, powerful uh, evangelical figures uh, in the Anglican Church. William Wilberforce is probably the best known, the anti-slavery campaigner, 
who was good friends with William Pitt, the Prime Minister. He convinced Pitt to authorise the Colonial Office to bring a chaplain because Wilberforce and others around him recognised uh, it was essential to provide for people's souls as well as for their bodies. So, uh, you know, they could put hoes and, and other tools and seeds in the, uh, in the ship, but they needed uh, both uh, a chaplain and the uh, literature that he would bring, including the Bible. Prayer books would have come with those as well. Uh, so that first chaplain, Richard Johnson, was charged with providing uh, and ministering uh, to the, the spiritual needs. But that was practical too. That included rites of passage like uh, marriages, baptisms, funerals. So he, he was a functionary in that sense as well. So there's that physical sense in which Christianity came, but it also came in the invisible baggage. Uh, that is, uh, the, the different beliefs and different expressions that various uh, colonists had. And here, it's, I think it's helpful to make a distinction between official religion. There were those who were members, say, of the, of the Church of England or members of Methodist churches. Some of the soldiers were Methodists. Uh, some were Presbyterian. Uh, quite a few were not church members and might have had varying uh, degrees of uh, religious beliefs or commitment. Uh, and certainly, uh, you had among many of the convicts, uh, many of whom were Irish in the first decades of transportation, uh, you had Catholic beliefs as well. So there's a whole range of different um, beliefs that went from the official beliefs of the Church of England, and that was, of course, the official religion of the state that was the established church in England and Ireland. And there was a, the Church of Scotland was the official church in Scotland, Presbyterianism. So they brought that, both the official religion and the unofficial or popular uh, religious beliefs and commitments. But officially it was embodied in the colonial chaplain, who was uh, one Reverend Richard Johnson, who was an Anglican chaplain, but he was also an evangelical. He was a protege of the networks around Wilberforce. I mean, broadly, it's, it's a movement that had developed in the 1730s, coming out of the Protestant Reformation. But that really, for the first generation, was the temper and the theological outlook of all of the chaplains who came. They were recruited through these evangelical networks. That changed later on in the 1820s, but initially, with the First Fleet, that was the, the key expression of Christianity. So in some respects, Michael, it's probably more accurate to say that it wasn't just Christianity that was brought out on the First Fleet, but a whole host of contemporary Christianities plural, given the different denominational <laughs> affiliation, whether it was the Irish Catholics or the, the, the fact that the chaplain was specifically an evangelical, not just any old uh, Church of England. You had some Methodists and uh, Presbyterians there. But let's just hone in on, on the, chop, the chaplain, the, cha <laughs> the chaplain, Johnson, who I imagine, I, I, will, I would just guess, had a disproportionate influence given he was the only clergyman there and actually had had been sent in a kind of official capacity. Mm. Um, I'm really interested in, in a bit about, did he leave journals or do we know a lot about his experience of this, what must have just been an extraordinary mission for the day, travelling out here <laughs> to, to minister to a penal colony in some strange land. And also given he was... A, 
not just a member of the Church of England, but an evangelical. Um, did he sort of pass it to the Irish Catholics and to the Methodists and the Presbyterians? Because I'm guessing the first church, church services and, and all the baptisms and funerals must have been Anglican, right? Yeah, that's right. So uh, the, the prayer book, the 1662 Book of Common Prayer, was the official uh, form of worship in the early Australian colonies. And it was an Anglican form of worship. And so the convicts, whether they were Irish, Presbyterian, Methodist, uh, had to attend these services. So there was uh, compulsory attendance at services. And this, that raises another issue that we can talk about later, but this, this rankled for many, um, rather than a, you know, a voluntarism in terms of worship. And even Johnson, the chaplain, uh, didn't think this was a good thing to force people into worship, whereas the authorities, they had been charged to, uh, to provide the forms of worship that would create um, morality and good order in the colony. So really, uh, Philip, who was uh, incidentally a deist in his beliefs. Oh, really? Uh, not, this is the first governor of the, the colony of New yeah, South Wales. Yeah, that's right. First governor of New South Wales. Uh, more deist in his beliefs rather than uh, a committed Christian in that sense. He uh, was responsible for ensuring that resources were provided for worship and that uh, Johnson had the uh, the resources to do his job uh, but his instructions were uh, to provide I think the phrase is something like due um, the due observances of religion for good order and for morality so he saw religion as a form I guess of social control in a sense but uh, importantly the chaplain Johnson didn't see religion in that sense uh, at all he saw that was part of it it was useful for you know, a well-ordered society and for uh, inculcating morality and, um, you know, having uh, ethical and moral citizens uh, and, you know, trying to reform these convicts as well. The majority were uh, convicts and criminals. Uh, but he saw it too as meeting the spiritual needs uh, of people which were to be at peace with their creator, to, uh, to know God personally. This was... Um, an emphasis, uh, obviously, within Christianity, but also especially within uh, evangelical forms of Christianity. So his concern was that people would encounter God personally through the gospel, through the message uh, of the cross of Christ and forgiveness, uh, and also through their repentance, uh, the, the active uh, expression of their faith in their conduct, uh, you know, in their uh, love toward one another, uh, and uh, and towards God. So, yeah, you had these different visions of what this Christianity would be for, uh, and, and I guess different views of how that would work out, and that did create tension at times in the colony. Tension specifically between Johnson and Philip, or just amongst the wider populace, some of whom <laughs> weren't evangelical Anglicans, others of whom I'm guessing weren't particularly pious or really religious or even very Christian in the modern sense. I wonder as well, do we even know if there were any sort of atheists in that first batch of humans that arrived? It's a good question. I, I don't know of any atheists, any who expressed sort of what were called free thinkers in that period. If there were, they would have been a very, very tiny minority. This is, this is a period uh, in which very, very few people would have 
self-defined as free thinkers, even if they weren't uh, committed um, churchgoers or they weren't, you know, outwardly committed to Christian beliefs or ethics, they would have still considered themselves broadly as Christian, uh, whether that was Catholic or Protestant or, uh, you know, whichever uh, expression of faith they came from. But yeah, back to your, your first question, was that tension and that opposition sometimes coming from the authorities and both the people? Well, the answer is it was coming from both. Uh, from, say, convicts, especially Catholics, who didn't appreciate uh, being uh, forced to, to adopt Protestant forms or to be under Protestant forms of worship, and those who were just irreligious, who uh, were opposed to, uh, sometimes on principle, uh, opposed to having to go to church and having to uh, take those uh, sacraments or those those forms. Uh, but you did get tension with the government authorities. Not so much Philip, who supported, uh, supported Johnson, but when he was recalled, uh, you had the next set of governors who, uh, in Australian history, they're notorious for corruption, basically. There's a long tradition of graft and corruption in Australian government. It goes back to these early periods. Uh, Gross was one of those. These were military officers. He had the right well. name for corruption. That's right. Gro <laughs> well, Gross with an E. Uh, but he did, yeah, he did, um, well, several of them allowed uh, a monopoly on what became the rum trade and effectively a form of currency in the early colony. And many of these officers were using their position to make money, to barter. These figures didn't appreciate uh, some of the outspoken criticisms that were coming from Johnson. And, you know, you asked earlier about what records we have of Johnson's time there. Uh, we have these wonderfully rich and detailed letters that he was writing back to his mentors, to Wilberforce, for example, back in London. These are kept in Lambeth Palace archives in the Anglican, um, the Anglican Church in London. But he was also writing to political supporters uh, and he was well connected in terms of high-placed evangelical politicians. They had the ear of politicians in the colonial office, like Lord Bathurst, who was the colonial, uh, oversaw uh, the colonial office, uh, and others who followed him. So uh, Johnson gives us an account of just a, a lack of support and even opposition to the work that he was doing under Gross and other officers. So, for example, the, perhaps the most famous incident was uh, 45 minutes into a service, suddenly uh, the, uh, one of the sergeants started beating the drums and all of the Marines uh, walked out, all of the, uh, the military walk out and took the convicts with them. It was right on the... So it was clearly premeditated. They'd planned yeah, that's right. to disrupt the, the service. To disrupt and to perhaps send a message that his service shouldn't go as long <laughs> as it was or his, perhaps his sermon shouldn't be as long. It was, it was mid-sermon. I mean, and this was... This was a direct um, insult and affront to Johnson, uh, to his work. Um, the, the colony was very slow to provide support in building a church. And actually, the first church that was built was burnt down, we think, by convicts, which suggests oh, really? some, some tangible uh, opposition to what Johnson was doing. Now, it wasn't all opposition. There were devout Christians among the soldiers, for example, uh, and even among some of the convicts. Uh, and... We, have, we also have accounts of immense appreciation at a personal level for Johnson because he was uh, deeply concerned uh, as a pastor. He saw 
the whole fleet as his flock. His charge was to minister to their needs. Now, that was not only their spiritual needs, ministering to their souls, but he uh, was also concerned to minister to their bodies. So uh, he engaged uh, in strenuous pastoral care right across the different settlements as they started to spread out. They moved westward towards Parramatta, um, where there were where agriculture and other rudimentary resources were being developed for the colony to be self-sufficient. So he was traveling extensively all over the colony and providing for physical needs. There was an account of a disease-ridden ship, one of the second and third fleet ships uh, that came out uh, where there was a cholera outbreak. It's very dangerous to visit and yet he went below decks to the stench and the filth and ministered to people there who were uh, both the dead and the dying. And actually, we have records of this uh, great appreciation for Johnson's uh, ministry. And, and some of the, uh, what, what has been seen as anti-clericalism or a kind of antipathy towards Christianity was more a protest against being, to being forced to uh, you know, undergo worship forms. In a way, a, a protest of conscience uh, and a protest for religious freedoms. Especially if you were a Catholic, an Irish Catholic yeah. convict, uh, you can appreciate that that wasn't um, gratefully received. And just on that point, there was no provision for Catholic priests in the First Fleet. There were two priests in uh, the early, about 1800, two arrived who were actually convicts. They were Catholic priests. Oh, who, really? Catholic priests. What, what, what were their crimes out of interest? They were implicated in the 1798 Irish Rebellion. Uh, there was a, a large rebellion in Ireland, 1798, uh, and they were implicated in that uh, against Protestant authorities. Interestingly, a little side note is the third Anglican clergyman, uh, one Henry Fulton, who was an Irish, Irish Anglican clergyman, the Church of Ireland, he was actually implicated in the 1798 uh, rebellion, but there was such a shortage. So he came out as a convict at His Majesty's pleasure, and he was—he just showed himself uh, good conduct, showed himself to be an upstanding citizen. And there was a shortage of clergy. Uh, Johnson and others were completely overworked as the colony started to grow by that time, and so he was actually uh, invited to be an Anglican clergyman. So the third Anglican clergyman was actually uh, an ex-convict. That would have interesting implications for his later career. He was. Uh, an advocate for convicts and for emancipists, for those who had, had done their time. But that is, that's getting further into the 1810s uh, and 20s. That's absolutely fascinating. So but these, yeah, these, these early two priests, Catholic priests, though, convict priests, were they allowed to hold services or did they unofficially and informally minister to the Catholics? How did that work? Yeah, they were allowed early on to provide sacraments and to, to provide services for Catholics. But... The larger context of the colony uh, and events there overtook them and made it very difficult. And this is um, partly the context of the Napoleonic Wars, which were, were going on at this time uh, against France. Um, and a long-standing fear with the British authorities of sort of a backdoor for Catholic forces, French Catholic forces, um, in fact, or Spanish, a long-standing fear that um, that Catholics would use either Ireland or Scotland as a backdoor to invade England. So there's a great concern about Catholics not being loyal members of the empire, a kind of fifth columnist 
in the colony. And so uh, this was all heightened in 1804 when there was a rebellion of the Irish, what's known as the Battle of Vinegar Hill uh, or Castle Hill Rebellion, uh, where Castle Hill in Sydney is today. Uh, a, a group of Irish rose up and uh, they were quickly put down, pretty ruthlessly actually, by Marines who marched from Sydney out to Castle Hill um, and had far superior military force uh, and killed several of them. Wow, in so this, this was a violent A pitched battle in Castle Hill, yeah. I don't and remember that being taught. We, I was only ever taught about the Eureka Stockade. Yeah, that. it's a lesser known incident. 1804, that incident was. But the implications of that were that there was a, a profound suspicion of Catholics and Irish Catholics in the colony. And as a result, the ministry of Dixon was one of these priests, this, this ex-convict priest. Their ministry was revoked because they feared that priests would be uh, sort of leaders fermenting and possibly fermenting um, treason and rebellion in the colony. They, they just didn't want something like this to happen again. So there was a great fear, particularly with the numbers of Irish Catholics in the colony. And well, do, do we know, are you able to say roughly what kind of proportion of the colony at this stage is actually Catholic? Oh, yeah, it's, that's a good question. I think possibly a majority of convicts would have been because you had disproportionate numbers of Irish. I'll have to take that one on notice. I, <laughs> I, there were no censuses, so we don't know exact numbers. There were no censuses before 1828. Mm -hmm. So there is a degree of guesswork in terms of the makeup of the population. Um, a significant number, I don't know the exact number, mm -hmm. but um, certainly you know, the establishment, the vast majority of those who are in the highest echelons of society from the governors to the high-ranking military officers uh, and those in government were Anglican uh, and obviously it's the established religion it's the respectable religion as well although it's the official religion uh, though later many would discover that it's not actually it wasn't actually the established religion because uh, you didn't have automatic uh, conferral of established status in England to the colonies. There were legal, uh, legal loopholes that had to be sort of tidied up in the 1820s and 30s uh, because it was found uh, both in the courts and uh, in England that actually jurisdiction didn't apply to colonies. So in effect, everyone thought the Church of England was the established official religion of the colony, but legally it wasn't. Can you just explain a little bit more? I mean, that, that in itself is quite a remarkable little twist to this story that for a couple of decades, everyone, and particularly I'm guessing the Anglican elite that are running the colony, just assumed that the Anglican church is established That's in right. the colony. Uh, when you say they learnt through the courts, I mean, what were, how did this ish matter end up in the courts in the first place? And exactly, could you go into a little bit more detail about what the court established and, and the reasons why they they judged that the Anglican Church was not established in the... Yeah, it, it's, uh, it's really tested in the courts partly through the work of Anglican clergy and uh, through uh, tensions that were arising between church and state in the early colony. One, one of the most significant was this fascinating uh, incident and, and it started with an Anglican clergyman at the gallows 
Uh, now, part of the job, I didn't mention this before, but part of the job of the clergy was also to be to provide ministrations at executions. Now, being a frontier colony and a penal colony, uh, sadly, there were uh, lots and lots of executions over time. Capital punishment was a fairly common practice in these early colonies, you know, if, particularly you know, for, for murder or for highway robbery, for bushrangers, that, that uh, rape, those kinds of crimes. There was, a, in these days, uh, a huge uh, number of capital crimes really? that you could be executed for. It was, the, the penal system was being reformed over time, um, and it's only it's in this period that it's being reformed in this first quarter of the 19th century. And certainly in the second half of the 19th century, you had the move towards, for example, um, the with Bentham and utilitarian ideals, you had the move to penitentiary uh, systems of surveillance rather than um, the kind of rough and ready prisons that you had up to this time. So uh, one of the jobs that, that clergy had was to be there to minister the last rites to uh, those about to be executed. And in, I think it was in the late 20s, a clergyman by the name of Bateman, Gregory Bateman, Anglican clergyman, uh, was asked to be there to minister at a hanging. In, this is in Tasmania, one of the other small um, penal colonies. And he felt there was a miscarriage of justice, that this convict should not have been hung. The evidence wasn't adequate, and he, uh, when he was at the gallows, he asked a servant, one of the boys there, to bring a dish. And on the gallows, this is in front of the all the military officers are there, uh, the soldiers are there uh, to, and this is a spectacle too. It's a public hanging uh, to be a spectacle for the community as well. Bateman held up this bowl, put his hands in it, and said. I wash my hands of this man's execution and made this oblique reference to Pontius Pilate. Mm, you know, wow. I, I wash my hands of this. And it was a stinging criticism of the government authorities. And yet he is part of the government authorities as a colonial chaplain in Tasmania. Now, this was escalated to the governor uh, and it was eventually escalated to the British Parliament. This, this case was discussed, discussed in the British Parliament because it raised questions uh, about authority and jurisdiction of clergy, the, the degree to which they should be under uh, authority, particularly um, governing military authorities, and uh, whether he could be court-martialed. The, the local magistrate, uh, who was a military officer as well, wanted him court-martialed, uh, but this had to be uh, discussed in terms of did they have the authority to court-martial him because he's, he's not under a military authority. That raised the question, what authority was he under? And it was found that in those test cases, those discussions in parliaments, uh, and this went to the courts, to the chanceries in Britain, uh, they found actually there wasn't clear uh, <laughs> jurisdiction of, uh, of the government authorities over the church. Where those spheres of authority lay, was just not clearly defined. And so they had to sort of hammer that out. Um, eventually, in 1836 and 1837, colonial, what were called the Colonial Church Acts were passed. And these were really the death knell of any kind of view of the Church of England uh, being an established church. They uh, stipulated 
for a whole lot of complex reasons we can discuss, which, which was also a push towards a more plural British confessional state, a away from the Church of England being the only established authority, uh, you had nonconformists uh, and Presbyterians, Methodists and others, um, and Catholics really pushing for reform in England. And 1828, uh, 1828 and 9, you had what were called the Emancipation Acts for nonconformists and Catholics in the British Parliament. That gave, uh, for the first time in a couple of hundred years, the same legal rights to Catholics and nonconformists as it gave to Anglicans. So this is fairly late, 1829. But the upshot of that was, in 1836, um, the outworking of that kind of legislation and this part of this constitutional rethinking of the nature of establishment in England led to acts being passed by Whig governments rather than the conservative Tories. So pushing a more liberal, pluralist state. Uh, in Australia, 1836 and 7, the Church Acts are passed. They make every uh, each of the four denominations, Presbyterian, Catholic, Methodist, and Anglican uh, on a level playing field. So none has any uh, rights over another, and they're all eligible for the same funding, a kind of pump priming funding to build churches and fund clergy. So in a way, it's quite interesting because it just shows you that certain developments in the United Kingdom in terms of the understanding of the place of different Christian denominations, churches, and how they all relate to the state ends up uh, shaping in a really profound way at a very early point in Australia's history <laughs> um, the particular status of different churches and the relationship here. And so because of the timing of the settlement in Australia, it really it's burst in quite a different um, point in British history. And so we, we avoid ending up with an established Anglican church. And if we fast forward, of course, to the Australian Constitution, well, the Constitution that, that forms <laughs> Australia out of the, mm. the colonies, which become states in 1901, I think it's Section 113, partly modelled on the, the uh, American Constitution or the whichever amendment it is or provision, sort of, which makes it very clear that there is no established religion. Not only that, but no government has the power yeah, that's <laughs> to right. actually establish a religion. And so you see the outworking of that religious pluralism. Can I, can I just ask, because this is on that, that pluralism point. So that, that's in, I think you said, the 30s, right? Yeah, but there was this, there was yeah. this uh, suppression, ruthless suppression of the, those sort of, those dastardly Catholic Irish... Irish Catholic out in Castle Hill uh, a couple of decades before. So in this period, uh, when do Catholic, Presbyterian and Methodist churches start to be built or are able to be built? And when do yeah. the, the clergy actually come out? And given that fascinating little uh, historical uh, incident you gave us with the chaplain down in Hobart, I'm guessing it was, or wherever it was in Tasmania, did the first sort of official Catholic clergy that weren't convicts, <laughs> along with, imagine at some point, Presbyterian and Methodist ministers start coming out, did they have some kind of official status like the Anglican chaplain, or were they just private members of the colony, if you know, if that makes sense? Mm. Like, yeah, that's yeah, a good question. So uh, from 1804, when that rebellion was, the Castle Hill Rebellion, uh, you know, and, and a really sort of anti-Catholic sort of temper 
among the official authorities. And of course, you know, down at the down at the grassroots level, there are you know those who are amicable in their relationships. You know, they're not blighted by this sectarianism. But it is. I mean, it's a strong feature of Australian culture right up into the 1960s and 70s. This sectarian Protestant Catholic divide. Um, it's not till the governorship of Lachlan Macquarie from 1810 to 1821 that you get a softening in the later part of his governorship, a softening towards Catholics. And it's partly because of what is happening in the metropolitan British context where there is a real push for rights for Catholics. And that has a longer backstory too that relates to Ireland as well, to um, you know, a real concern that Ireland is going to go revolutionary because it's predominantly Catholic. Uh, and if, the, if there are not concessions uh, in the British Parliament to the Irish, then uh, there's going to be civil war effectively. There's going to be violence. So those concessions happening in the British Parliament. So that, of course, we have to remember the Australian colonies are part of an empire. So they are, as you say, they're wedded to what's happening in the metropolitan context. Uh, so this softening by the 1810s, in 1820, uh, Macquarie passes uh, legislation that says they can have Catholic chaplains. And they are actually uh, not just private clergy, but they become colonial chaplains as well. They're given the same status, uh, although almost half the pay. <laughs> really? Yeah, and it's, uh, it's partly because, of course, Catholic priests are celibate. They don't have families. Oh, okay. So it's considered, you know, the government's always concerned about economy, and governors are always trying to balance the books and not overspend because the British Treasury is uh, putting a lot of resources and money into these colonies, particularly a penal colony, as you can imagine, um, huge capital expenditure from the British Treasury. Got to have a lot of soldiers here who have to be paid. That's right. For example. Well, and you're also paying to look after the convicts because you've set up a big penal farm effectively. It's not till the 1820s when you get a lot of free settlers and investment, entrepreneurial investment starting to happen in Australia that you're able to wean people off government. But yeah, it's a, it's a hugely, uh, I guess, um, central or planned economy in a sense, <laughs> pre-socialist <laughs> pre planned economy, yeah. where the British Treasury is, is up for a lot of the, the costs of the colony and is wanting to get out of those costs as much as possible over time, <laughs> uh, including supporting the church. But the it's important to note that the British Treasury is paying the salaries of the colonial chaplains, of the clergy. It's also paying for church building, uh, the infrastructure of the churches. It's a tension too, because you know the, uh, the piper who pays calls the tune, and so clergy are always uh, trying to navigate this tension, that they are in the employ of the state, but they're also in the employ of the church. They are serving, and many of them see themselves as serving the church first and foremost. That is their calling and vocation to uh, church first, government second. Hence the tension with a figure like Bateman in Tasmania. Uh, but 1820, you have the appointment of Catholic priests officially, and they're allowed uh, from that time. In 1825, uh, John Dunmore Lang, one of the most colorful and fascinating figures in uh, this period of Australian history. Uh, he's a Presbyterian minister from Scotland, uh, manages to alienate just about everyone in the colony. He's, uh, he has lawsuits that come against him because of his libelous insults of his opponents. Uh, he's an extraordinary figure. He's a Republican. Uh, he pushes for a republic early on, 
a form of government rather than a monarchy. He's, he's a, a dyed-in-the-wool Scot who uh, doesn't have much time for his English overlords. Uh, and he wants to assert, when he comes out in 1825, the rights of the Presbyterian Church. And he says, why have we not recognised the Presbyterian Church as the other established church of the colony, which it is in England? Many people don't realise that the Church of Scotland, the Presbyterian Church, is the established church mm, in Scotland yeah. alongside the Church of England in England and Ireland. So in 1825, uh, he is this uh, uh, outspoken Presbyterian minister who really starts to establish Presbyterianism. And he's- With a bang. With a bang, <laughs> that's right. Uh, they, they know he's there uh, for the next 30 or 40 years. He's interesting too, because he does several trips to Scotland and actually on every trip to Scotland, it's several months each way. Uh, he uses that to write pamphlets and books advocating his cause and often critiquing the government. Uh, but pushing for emigration as well. And he is responsible for recruiting... Emigration from Presbyterians in uh, particular? Of or? Presbyterian Scots. Uh, so okay. he does tours of Scotland and recruits thousands of uh, Scottish skilled labourers, uh, clergy as well. He's recruiting clergy, Presbyterian clergy. And he brings uh, is responsible for, for bringing thousands of Scots, free settler Scots out from the 20s and 30s. So you start to get this... this change of complexion in the mm. colony in the 20s and 30s from a convict uh, penal colony to uh, a majority free settler colony. And, that, and so you sh see that shift. And Macquarie in the 20s is part of that hinge from convict colony to a free settler colony. I've got to ask, how does a crazy character like that Scott end up in Australia? Why, did he come out because he saw an opportunity to create some kind of... Uh, radical Presbyterian community or I mean how did he end up here yeah it's a good question you know I, I've, I've done a lot of work on on looking at clergy and why they came out and for some of them it was push factors economic factors uh, uh, an oversupply of curates and clergy and limited jobs in uh, England in particular in the Church of Ireland there was a reform of the Church of Ireland so there weren't enough jobs there for clergy and curates. So for some of them came out because there were opportunities in the colonies for pursuing their job and their vocation. It doesn't mean they were just coming out for the money because the money wasn't uh, amazing. It was, I mean, it was just barely uh, a middle-class, the kind of salary that could keep a middle-class family. Um, Not to mention that these colonies weren't particularly flash and they're a long way away from your family and that's right. home country. So I mean, it's quite a big sacrifice to come out here. That's right. And many assumed um, that they may not come back to the country. It was, I mean, early on, it's eight months voyage each way. So it's a couple of years mm. of transport, even just to get here uh, and to get back. Uh, about a third, actually, of Anglican clergy did uh, leave Australia and, and many went back to England or different parts of the empire, India, uh, British North America, what became Canada. Um, they were quite a mobile group um, in these circuits of empire. It wasn't just a, a one-way England and the Australian colonies. Um, but others came out because they saw a need. They saw uh, the fact that there were countrymen, thousands of countrymen settling these different colonies like the Cape, like the Australian colonies, British North America or Canada. Um, you know, the British Empire is expanding exponentially from the 1780s. What we know as the second British Empire, 1780 to about 1830. 
you had this rapid expansion um, that included the Australian colonies. Uh, there's also uh, expansion in India, but even places like the West Indies, you had this extraordinary um, growth of the British Empire. And so many saw actually a need. They said, we need uh, missions to our settlers. And uh, many clergy felt that, that vocation to serve people in those contexts. Others had a missionary vocation for the indigenous peoples. And there were several clergy that came out who were really keen to, uh, to engage in mission to Australian Aboriginals, to those in the Pacific. Many of these early evangelicals, Richard Johnson among them, the first chaplain, uh, saw the Australian colonies as a staging post for missions to these unreached people groups. This is a period in which from the 1780s and 90s onwards, you know, Cook and his travels and voyages had publicized these parts of the world, these exotic parts of the world that uh, no one had really heard of before. Fiji in particular, the Fijians were uh, the most feared cannibals. We think of Fiji today as a, a wonderful tourist destination, but in the 18th and 19th centuries, this was a byword for cannibalism and for some of the most feared uh, headhunters and natives. Uh, so uh, Christian missionaries saw an opportunity there to take the gospel to these peoples. And this is, this is energized by this uh, evangelical desire for mission and activism. So there were all these mixes of motives among the clergy, whether they were Presbyterians or Anglicans. Um, John Dunmore Lang, for his part, this uh, outspoken Scot, uh, saw this opportunity for reaching his fellow Scots. He had a vocation, I guess, of mission to, um, to the Scots, but he was also influenced by one of the most uh, influential thinkers of the day on economics and on welfare, Thomas Chalmers, but one of the greatest intellectuals of the early 19th century. He was mentored by Chalmers in his university studies in Scotland. And Chalmers is, was a world's uh, renowned public intellectual as well as being a Scottish Presbyterian minister. He'd done extraordinary work in Glasgow, in the slums of Glasgow, and trying to reform poor laws and trying to reach the poor. And so Lang, having caught something of that vision, saw these settler colonies as opportunities for the dislocated and the poor in Scotland. And you had, uh, in the 19th century, the highland clearances. There was a, a consolidation of agriculture so that small tenant farmers were, were effectively pushed off their farms but uh, were left you know, with, with nowhere to go. And the, the colonies were seen as an opportunity for those people. So for Lang, he had this broader vision to, uh, to meet the needs of um, struggling Scots and poor Scots. And the colonies were seen as this opportunity in this period in the 1830s and 40s. And so you had this extraordinary period of mass migration coming from Britain right across the, the settler colonies of the British Empire. Um, you mentioned uh, missionary work in the Pacific there. And I did want to ask you when, how the first missionaries began moving out to try and reach Indigenous Australians and how they fared and how that all, all went. Yeah, and it's helpful to understand the context of the 1790s here. There was an explosion of, uh, of missionary enthusiasm. And this is on the back of those voyages, um, being dis the, the voyages of Cook. They were uh, publicised in books and, and magazines and journals. And this, this really caught the imagination of evangelical Christians in England. Perhaps the most famous is the Baptist William Carey, who read some of these 
these books, Cook's Voyages in particular, and said, uh, why are we not uh, sending missions to these parts of the world? The Catholics had been doing it, of course, you know, right back to the discovery of the New World by Europeans, 1492. They were sending uh, missionaries out, Jesuits, uh, Dominicans and others. And evangelicals were saying, well, Protestants have been slow off the mark in terms of missions to uh, peoples elsewhere. That had been the case in the Reformation as well. Anyway, this led to uh, Carey's publicizing of the need for missions as well as creating a mechanism for it because this is the period in which uh, with um, the growth of laissez-faire capitalism, you had the uh, incorporated company with shareholders. This, this mechanism was starting to become uh, very influential and powerful in sort of developing free market economics. He said, why don't we do a similar kind of uh, model of an incorporated company, but a missionary society that does the same thing, where uh, shareholders put their penny in to support it. This created a mechanism for missionary societies in the 1790s, right across denominations. So evangelicals, Anglicans, Baptists, nonconformists, Congregationalists, they founded missionary societies. Between uh, 1790 and 1810, there were dozens of these missionary societies founded both in Britain and in Germany, Lutherans in Germany, for example, in Scotland and in America. Americans were starting to uh, catalyze for missions. This led to, in the 1790s, uh, several missions to the Pacific. That was seen as one site. Others went to India. The Baptists were famous for their work in India, uh, and they concentrated on these areas. Uh, so these Congregationalists who founded the London Missionary Society went out in the 1790s. It was actually a disaster, though, the first voyage. Uh, one thing they hadn't banked on was many of these young single men uh, didn't know about sexual hospitality in some of these islands uh, where um, young women would be provided uh, as hospitality for these visitors. And this caused many uh, attention for many in their Christian commitment to you know, celibacy before marriage. And uh, this caused scandals. And uh, they realized that actually it was probably good to send married men out who would be more steady uh, in these contexts and these circumstances. Um, but you had those early failures. Several of those nonconformist missionaries became clergy in the colony of New South Wales. But you had Anglicans and early chaplains. The most famous is Samuel Marsden, uh, who arrived in 1794. He uh, really took over from Johnson and was far more successful. He's there for the next 40 years, a uh, key figure in the colony and establishing the church there. But he and others, uh, in the Anglican Church Missionary Society. He was well connected with England. Uh, he arranged to get several Anglican missionaries out to go to the Pacific, but also to New Zealand, to the Māori in New Zealand. And you had uh, this uh, extraordinary mission started there. And actually, Marsden is known as the flogging parson in Australia because he was uh, a magistrate and also handing out uh, flogging sentences to convicts. This is another interesting dual role that perhaps we can talk about another tension of church and state. Uh, but he's also known as the Apostle to the Māori. He made seven trips uh, and uh, was extremely uh, well-received and successful in his organizing missionaries to, to reach the New Zealanders. That's another story again. The New Zealanders, the Māori, saw an opportunity here to trade in muskets as well as literacy. They saw the, the great advantages of Christianity in that sense. Uh, and so you had sort of you know, varying motives for the take-up of Christianity there. Um, so anyway, that is, that's another story in itself, of course, but that really established a bridgehead of missions in uh, New Zealand and further afield in places like Fiji 
Tonga, uh, you had several missionaries from the 1790s uh, through the 1800s on. Uh, so an extraordinary sort of a extraordinary story there, partly because Christianity was so well received in those places. It's, it became, and still is today, one of the most Christianized parts of the world. There was extraordinary uh, take up of Christianity there. Uh, and that's still the case today in, if you visit the mm. Pacific. Whereas in contrast, there's a different story with indigenous Australians uh, who were largely, uh, we could probably say quasi-nomadic, although that is a, a big point of debate today <laughs> in light of uh, recent literature. But um, there wasn't really a model for uh, yeah, a, a view of static missions. And this is, again, this is getting so, into... So you mean the, the, the kind of um, social organisation uh, of Indigenous Australians actually presented a kind of logistical challenge for missionaries who clearly need to embed themselves in communities yeah. Because conversion doesn't happen overnight. That's right. Practically in that sense, yeah, you didn't have static communities with agriculture, whereas in the Pacific you did. These, these people were like the Maori in New Zealand, for example. They had agriculture. They, they, didn't, they weren't mobile. The indigenous Australian populations were generally far more mobile, uh, moving around certain areas. Uh, and there wasn't a model, yeah, for this, partly because of just the rigours of, of living off the land. Like Europeans just weren't constitutionally, physically, up to those demands. But it was also intellectual. And being products, many of these figures of, of the Scottish Enlightenment and what's known as stadial thought, this was a thought um, really prevalent in the late part of the 18th century as part of, the, uh, part of Enlightenment thought. And it was reinforced by uh, Adam Smith, uh, the Wealth of Nations, you know, the late 1700s, his ideas of uh, free market laissez-faire economics were feeding into this. It was a view that um, there was kind of, st stadial just meant stages of development from hunter-gatherer society, so kind of a, a notion of progress, which was deep within the DNA of Enlightenment thought, and notions of civilization that actually British were bringing a civilized uh, stage to them. Uh, that be so the stages began with hunter-gatherers that progressed to agricultural societies, uh, and then the culmination of that were the civilized civil societies that had been created in the West over time, you know, over long, long periods and, and centuries. So those assumptions uh, were sort of in the intellectual baggage, even of Christians and, and missionary strategists, uh, that actually the idea was perhaps to civilize, help these people be civilized first, then you could reach indigenous Australians. If you had them in static settlements, you know, in agriculture, you know, mixing labor with the land, these are principles taken from, uh, from Adam Smith and from other Scottish Enlightenment thinkers. So that also, this kind of civilizational bias and this stadial thought was part of an impediment to, to missions to early indigenous Australians. That is, you know, that's another sort of big story and, and part of the legacies of this early period of contact. And, and actually, you know, back to what clergy were doing, Johnson uh, had uh, really had a heart for missions to Indigenous peoples. And actually, he, he took an Aboriginal child into his home early on. Uh, Burong, her name was. And he, his hope was that uh, she would embrace Christianity and Western culture. That was unsuccessful in the end. She left the home, stayed with them for a few years, 
uh, and learnt um, both European ways and learnt uh, Christianity. But there were these kinds of attempts. But there was, in terms of sort of the the intellectual trajectory of thinking about missions, of missiology in these periods, the early decades of the 19th century uh, had this uh, Enlightenment inflected civilizational bias, you know, informed by Scottish Enlightenment stadial thinking. But there were those who were uh, arguing for a much more organic approach to missions, where instead of trying to impose Western culture and language as well, you know, so that you would teach indigenous peoples English, they would be assimilated into English society, there was actually a, a counter view that actually you should uh, learn indigenous culture and try to indigenize Christianity in that culture. And so there were several missions in the Pacific and particularly in India. Baptists in India had emphasized translation of the Bible into vernacular languages, into Indian, Indian languages, uh, into Pacific languages. And it was actually being found by the 20s and 30s that those efforts were far more successful. There was a much more organic take up of Christianity rather than a kind of uh, you know, imposition of both Western culture and assumptions uh, and you know forcing people to assimilate to that there's no monolithic approach to missions it has to be remembered there's experimentation and there are different approaches that have varying degrees of success i am aware that in australian history missions obviously has all kinds of ugly connotations for a lot of indigenous australians a lot of non-indigenous contemporary australians this is idea of um, you know wicked Christian missionaries destroying indigenous culture and taking children away from their families I guess that was more the government but often they ended up being educated I think in missions I've met indigenous uh, mm. Australians sort of of the baby boomer generation who grew up in um, Christian mission context but also, the, the counterbalance there is that uh, Christians, <laughs> Christian missionaries actually did a lot to preserve particularly indigenous languages. Some of the only records mm. we have are from early Christian missionaries, which I, I, I guess must come from that alternative approach to the sort of more contextualization, contextual contextualization approach to missionary work. I mean, could you speak a little bit about, mm. particularly in this early period where we're talking about were there missionaries in the early colonies that went out and started learnt, that successfully learnt some of the local languages and started documenting them? Or, and did some of them manage to form good, positive relationships with some of these communities? Whether they became Christian or not, I don't know. But, or were they just kind of strange white men with weird ideas that were hanging around in yeah. the strange time for them, full stop? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. There, uh, yeah, we are getting into one of, the, one of the more complex and one of the more sort of tragic elements of Australian history, of course. You know, and you know, settler colonies across the world, that is the case, these legacies of colonialism and imperialism. In terms of the Christian um, involvement in that and complicity in that, yeah, it, it has to be said as you noted, on the one hand, that Christians were complicit in that imperial project by virtue of just stepping onto Australian soil and being part of this larger British Empire. You know, clergy included, missionaries included, they are part of 
this project that is effectively taking the land from uh, the indigenous peoples. On the other hand, there's this complicity, but on the other hand, in almost every case, it's committed Christians who are advocates of indigenous peoples in this period. I mean, there's horrendous uh, conflict happening on the, on the frontier and beyond the frontier, beyond the purview of government. There's also punitive government expeditions uh, to kill Aborigines where there is conflict, where, you know, where white people, Europeans are being murdered, uh, you would have punitive expeditions being sent out uh, for reprisals or to prevent it. Uh, you had settlers taking matters into their own hands and murdering with impunity uh, in these early decades, uh, indigenous peoples and, and massacres right across uh, in, in both sort of rural areas, uh, even in areas close to settlement, because you've got a, a span, an expanding scattering settlement by the 1820s, and that's often going ahead of government. So it's a bit like the Wild West, where you've got these towns and settlements or um, you know, stations, sheep stations being established uh, that aren't under government jurisdiction. So the central planned settlement is uh, sort of falling down and settlers in this massive landscape are just going off and that's right. Building farms wherever they feel like it. Yes. You know, they're known as squatters is the term and the squatocracy. These are settlers who are going outside of government boundaries. There's, you know, a defined, what are called the counties. There's a defined area that is mapped and government has control over. These guys just camp outside that mapped area. They set up a camp. They start, you know, start running sheep. And then they claim rights to this land because, you know, under the view of sort of a... I guess the prevailing economic views of the time. Uh, if you mix labour with the land, mm. that uh, equals ownership. Yeah, it's a good um, Lockean idea. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. You know, natural rights to to life, liberty, property, and I mean, it's also you know, it, it's what's also the logic within you know the doctrine of terra nullius that indigenous people didn't own the land because they weren't mixing labour with it. Mm. They were or not seen to be mixing labour with it in uh, a conventional European understanding of that. So yeah, you had this, this brutal conflict on the, the frontier. In almost every case, uh, advocates were Christians and they form uh, societies, Aboriginal protection societies. They are lobbying uh, their supporters back in, in England, Wilberforce and others, for example, evangelicals are lobbying them uh, to, to do something about this, to have, get the ear of government because of the, these depredations. Uh, you have missionaries coming. Really, they're slow off the mark in comparison to missions to the Pacific where there's such success because it's seen as a very hard mission field to reach. But in the 20s and 30s, you have several missionaries from different denominations uh, going out and trying to reach indigenous peoples. And uh, you mentioned translation. The, the, some of my research at the moment into the Bible Society of Australia um, records some of the earliest attempts to translate and to preserve and, and to learn indigenous languages and particularly uh, Lancelot Threlkeld who was a congregational minister in the 1820s uh, he struck up this extraordinary friendship with an Aboriginal man by the name of Biraban uh, of the Awabakal uh, nation in what is roughly around the area of uh, Newcastle and Lake Macquarie in New South Wales coastal New South Wales uh, and he dedicated years of his life to learning the Awabakal language, 
he tried to learn other languages around the area as well because it's a very diverse linguistic um, makeup. The these uh, Australian nations. There's several hundred Australian nations uh, on the continent and several hundred languages and dialects as well. He learnt uh, Arabical and did some of the earliest translation work. Uh, wrote grammars and it's actually. Um, one of the best preserved early indigenous languages. And his aim was to uh, reach the Arabical people with the gospel. Tragically, the uh, impact of colonization of the settlers uh, and the, the murder of Arabical people meant that by the time he had translations of the gospels, he translated parts of the New Testament, there were only a handful of Arabical people alive. Uh, because of the impacts of um, settlement, settlement in that area. So it's this uh, tragic story. And that story was repeated in other places in Australia where you would have translation efforts of missionaries and yet you would have dwindling populations. But you had other, other groups in the 30s and 40s, particularly Lutheran missionaries coming from Germany. And Lutheran missions were uh, dedicated to vernacular language translation. It was part of their Lutheran DNA. And if you think back to yeah, the Protestant Reformation, yeah, that makes sense. A, a huge uh, emphasis from Luther and others was to translate the Bible into vernacular German so that uh, the plowman, the person on the street, could read the Bible for themselves. That was within the Lutheran DNA. And, DNA, and so it's actually Lutheran missions uh, across Australia who punch above their weight in terms of doing this translation work, particularly in areas like Central Australia. And that would bear fruit later in the 20th century in um, the Arante or Aranda um, peoples and those parts of Central Australia. So you've got pockets of it, but it should be said uh, in comparison to translation work that's happening in other parts of the world. There's several hundred um, places where the Bible is translated and in the Pacific context where there's such rapid and successful take-up of Christianity, you had the whole Bible translated into uh, several, about, I think, by the 1850s, um, eight or nine languages uh, in you know, Fiji and Tonga and other places. But uh, through the whole of the 19th century, there was still no full Bible translated into an indigenous Australian language. There were um, a few gospels, there were some you know, pockets of translation, but Translation of indigenous languages in Australia was far behind the Pacific and other places in the world. So it's, it's a mixed story. It's certainly a mixed legacy. Yeah. And as you say, very complex. You could do a whole conversation on that, but that's all really interesting. Can I just go back to where we began with this, this idea of the extent to which or the role of Christianity in the foundation of the British colonies in what would become Australia. You know, it, it occurs to me at this point in the conversation that it should be incredibly uncontroversial that Christianity is intimately interwoven with the colonies at the official level. So even if we go all the way back to Philip with his kind of deistic view of that, you know, religion is sort of an integral component in the social formation and moral conduct mm. learning of the colony to the the chaplains who have a kind of you know they're they're funded by the the government back in london and they're ministering and, and you know it's kind of probably 
almost mind-blowing in secular Australia to think that in that first early days of the settlement of Botany Bay, church attendance was compulsory. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's not exactly a secular uh, foundation. And of course, everyone in the colony, and, and really, and I imagine even once we get into the free settler period from the 20s, and as, the, as multiple colonies um, spring up around Australia, first down in Tassie, and we get Melbourne and Adelaide. South Australia in 1836. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the settlers start moving out into the, away from the, the coast. I mean, most of them still, if we went back and polled them, probably would have said they were Christians of some sort. I imagine almost everyone was baptised into some, some yeah, church. And right. a certain percentage of them would have, would have had a serious Christian commitment of one sort or another. And of course, it's pretty early on, in part because of the developments we touched on in Great Britain, that the Catholics and the the dissenting churches, Presbyterians, Methodists, start to get official posi- um, some kind of official standing uh, in mm. the the colonies. Churches start to be to be built. Missionary work gets underway. So, why why do I have the sense that? This the what what seems obvious, <laughs> and it must be smashingly obvious to a historian that works on this. That in Australia there seems to be either a some controversy around the role of Christianity in Australia. In some ways, we're very uncomfortable about it. You've got your secularists who really seem to think saying the Lord's Prayer in Parliament is the sort of greatest affront and issue in Australia today. Um, and I guess in some ways it's because only sort of 8 to 12% of Australians now are regular churchgoers. But maybe it's something to do with the way history is taught in school. And if, if I go back to, we both mentioned, you know, that we, we looked at the First Fleet and the settlement of Australia and probably dressed up as convicts and went to old, I don't know, well, I was, I was born in Sydney, so we went to old Sydney town and did, did lots of convict stuff, sang, sang songs that they sang on the First Fleet or whatever and... I remember learning all about, you know, the how they discovered that you could eat onions to to stave off scurvy and like we went to excruciating. <laughs> what should we do with a drunken sailor? I remember learning. That yeah, 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 you know, and just all, all that stuff. But I don't remember Christianity ever being mentioned or church. I guess what I, what I want to invite you to speak to is this idea of that Australia was no matter which way you look at it, founded by Christians, which saw a prominent role for Christianity in the life of the colonies and eventually what would become Australia in 1901. I guess the one distinction is that it, it wasn't... Australia wasn't settled for religious pur- purposes like the Puritans in New mm. England. Um, quite the opposite, actually. Yeah, <laughs> so that's it, right. It's an afterthought. And yeah. that, is, that is a real contrast. Although the there States. is... There is, even though the very reason why you explained that Johnson ended up coming out was this concern that we're sending out these convicts and they, they were people that needed That's right, so it's a voluntary reformation. Yeah, like, so, like the US. I, I guess what I'm really asking is why, if you agree, why has this element of Australian history, why is it not part of the story we tell ourselves? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and you're right. The, the impact of Christianity, I mean, it, like with Western culture, you know, if you read a, a recent book that sort of brings this out is Tom Holland's Dominion. Mm-hmm. He shows just how 
profoundly Christianity pervades Western civilization and culture and assumptions and moral judgments. Uh, legal, our legal system is founded on the Decalogue. I mean, that's the same in the 18th century. You know, this is, uh, this is a Christian nation, nominally you know, a, a Christian British empire. Its legal system is founded on Judeo-Christian assumptions. Uh, it's the, the moral and social consensus of society uh, is a Christian, broadly Christian morality. And of course, you know, there's shades of uh, commitment and understanding to that. Uh, and that is the case really, and this helps to sort of answer that question, why the, why the secular narrative and why is religion pretty much written out of the historical story and narrative? Um, really, it's until the 1960s, you have a broadly Christian social and moral consensus in Australia. The social mores are broadly Christian. If you think about the Ten Commandments and uh, the way those sort of underpin the legal system and operate within society, people would agree on those. But you had in the 1960s what some historians have called the hinge years. And historians of secularization, they note a long, a long trajectory of secularization. You can see some of it starting to increase in the late 19th century, the so-called Victorian crisis of faith, although that is another, that's debatable, that term, because there's plenty of evidence of a crisis of doubt as well and people turning back to Christian faith. But intellectually, you know, with Darwinism, with higher criticism, with um, philosophy after Feuerbach and Nietzsche leading up to Freud, you get um, a move away from Christianity in elite intellectual circles. You start to get an increase in secularization, less people committed to churches, a loosening affiliation with churches uh, in the interwar years between the First World War and the Second World War. But it's not till the 1960s that you see a rapid increase in um, people leaving churches or you know, not committed to churches, but also in reform of laws, in an increasing liberalization of, say, divorce laws or laws in relation to abortion, um, which you know, really were held by Christian social and moral understandings before that time. So that loosening and these hinges in the 1960s of increasing secularization, that gives rise among sociologists and historians to a kind of theory of secularization that modernity and uh, you know, an increasingly modernizing uh, society will inevitably become secular because they'll throw off the superstition that was uh, you know, hangover from the medieval period uh, and they'll embrace the new insights of post-enlightenment modernity. Uh, we don't need religion anymore. There's all sorts of, I mean, that's another discussion, there's all sorts of factors feeding into that. This theory of secularization in some ways became a self-fulfilling prophecy. And a lot of sociologists, Peter Berger is probably the most famous one who bought into this. And then famously in 1999 wrote a book saying, I was completely wrong. <laughs> it's not secularization, it's pluralism that is mm -hmm. changing the complexion of the West. But uh, from the 60s right through to the 2000s, pretty much a, a huge amount of uh, Australian historians and sociologists just bought into this kind of secularization narrative and assumed this would relegate religion purely to private life and it would leave the public sphere. Uh, and many, because they were secularists or the humanists or atheists or neo-Marxists, thought this is a good thing. Um, leave it in the private sphere where it belongs, get it out of public life, which, um, uh, which is a kind of naive assumption as well. As I just ask Michael, was sort of the disinterest in the religious 
aspect of Australian history, which is hard to miss. I imagine it's slapping you in the face if you study certainly anything <laughs> before the night, any part of Australian history before the 1960s. Is that disinterest, does it just stem from the personal disinterest so that the historians themselves are no longer religious? And so they're really, you know, human beings naturally gravitate to what interests them. So they do they start to the historical questions and aspects of Australian history that start to animate and energise historians just tend to be things that aren't particularly religious because that's really just of no interest to them personally. Is it as simple as that? Yeah, yeah it's, that's part of it. It's a mixture of things. Sometimes it's just disinterest. They don't like religion. And in fact, it's a really interesting little vignette of, uh, of one prominent Australian historian at he's at Rhodes House in Oxford and they went around all these Australian scholars because that was the natural historians like Manning Clark and others probably the most famous there was uh, you know you did your undergraduate university here and then you went to Oxford or Cambridge to do your advanced work your master's or your doctoral work that was kind of the standard and then you came back to Australia to you know have a chair of history in a university uh, and there was this I, th I think it was the 1940s or 50s where you had this group of Australians at Rhodes House introducing themselves and almost uh, uh, the vast majority of them were sons of clergy, uh, they, of some kind, whether it was Anglican or Methodist, you know, um, or prominent uh, church leaders. And many of those had rejected their parents, uh, their, their clerical father's um, commitments. Manning Clark is the most famous. His father was an Anglican clergyman. And you get when he writes about Anglican clergy, his father actually uh, uh, was, had to leave the church, I think, because of a, uh, an extramarital relationship. And there's this animus towards the Anglican church. And you, it, it, it just infects whenever he writes about Anglican parsons. I mean, he talks, he, he talks about them as flogging parsons or civil servants in cassocks. I mean, he can't say a good word about Anglican clergy. They're seen as agents of social control, agents of the establishment, uh, you know, the powers that be. Um, that, so sometimes you get this animus that's colored by one's own religious outlook. You know, he, and he was flirting with communism. He was, you know, uh, quite a lot of Australian historians like Stuart McIntyre is probably one of the most famous and prominent were uh, engaging, really heading to the left, a kind of neo-Marxism, which, you know, sees religion as a kind of epiphenomenon, as, as a kind of opiate of the masses, you know, in, in Marx's words. And so really, you know, from this, this generation of historians also coincides with a rising nationalism and national identity in Australia. So you've got that operating as well. Manning Clark is the most famous who's saying, why aren't we writing Australian history? Front rank scholars should be writing the best scholarship on Australian history. So you get, you know, and a movement towards a sense of national identity emerging from the 60s onwards. So these nationalist historians are embracing what you could call a kind of secular nationalism. And it's really a secular nationalist narrative that drives their writing of history. Manning Clark is an exception though, compared to others, because at least he takes religion seriously. And he, famously, his, uh, his schema for Australian history was a three-way contest between Protestantism, Catholicism, and the Enlightenment. He said this is a three-way kind of uh, intellectual ideological contest and you know it overlaps and it's quite complex but you see these vying intellectual and spiritual commitments 
uh, vying for supremacy over time. Uh, and you know, his view, which was heading towards the left over time, was that you know it was the Enlightenment model that that really should take over, a kind of humanist, secular humanist Enlightenment model. But at least he was taking religion seriously in his analysis. Other historians tended to just ignore it completely. So you find you find it just being elided from the narrative, the story of Australian history uh, in so many different areas. I mean, that's what I found when I started research, researching Anglican clergy. They were seen as agents of the imperial and colonial state. This is partly Clark's uh, heritage, but he's not the only one. Uh, they're just seen as agents of the establishment. And there's no recognition that actually most of these men were called first and foremost by the church. And they were trying to establish a transcendent kingdom, not just the kingdom of Britain or the, uh, the empire. There's actually a, you know, an empire of the faith that they were concerned about. And that was intention, as we've noted in some of our mm-hmm. earlier discussion, there was intention with the imperatives of the imperial and colonial state. And sometimes with, uh, once you get a nation here, with the Australian uh, with Australian politicians in the Australian state. Uh, so that's part of this, this complex story. Um, I should say, though, in recent decades, there has been, and I see myself as one of a, a, a group that was also emerged in the 60s of historians who emerged saying, actually, that's an inadequate narrative. It's, it's not a full-orbed account of Australian history. We need to bring this religious and spiritual element back in. We don't want to overstate it, you know, make it the pivot yeah. of history. But it does need to be brought back in if we want to really understand Australian history and culture, uh, morality, society, politics. Uh, it's encouraging to me that there are uh, you know, mainstream, front-rank Australian historians who have recognised that. And in their work, I, I, possibly the, the one I appreciate the most is Alan Atkinson. He's probably Australia's foremost historian, uh, historian of Australia. His three-volume Europeans in Australia is a masterpiece. It's a magnum opus. It really, in a sense, it, um, it's the successor to Manning Clark's History of Australia in six volumes. Uh, Atkinson only needs three. <laughs> Clark needed six. But really, historians like that, and there are others uh, that, uh, Graham Davison in Melbourne, there's, there's a few others uh, who, at least, even if they're not people of faith, they've recognised, actually, this is important and significant, and we need to understand it if we want to really understand history properly. And so the secular nationalist narrative, or just a secularist narrative, is completely inadequate. That's really interesting and encouraging. It just shows how it's one of the fascinating things about history to me. I did my undergraduate studies in history. My first ambition was actually to become a, a, a historian. And I want to become a historian of It's never of too America. late, Jonathan. Uh, well, if you see the light, know. come and talk know. to me. I don't know. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> the it's fascinating. What, what I find most fascinating about history in some ways is not the histories, but the history of historiography because it mm. really does move in these waves. And it seems like a certain approach really catches on and becomes dominant for a generation. Then there's like a corrective... And yeah, things swing over right. to a, a different side. And so in some ways, it's not surprising that there has been a corrective, but it is interesting and encouraging because it, it does, in a way, go against the current of certainly the, the perception of most Christians in this country, which is of a kind of besieged, or at least for conservative, more conservative Orthodox 
Bible believing uh, Christians for one of a grayer term. Mm. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I can't think of that's as bad as gray as it gets, but um, this sense that we're in this very, not only a secular culture, but a kind of secular culture that is increasingly hostile to Christianity, which is becoming a byword. Not just, I mean, it, you know, if only we were in the days when it was just the harmless superstition. Now it's increasingly... Yeah, it's hostility seems, rather than grudging. It's connect, what's it connected with in the popular imagination? You know, the sexual abuse of children, um, the annihilation of indigenous cultures, part of that colonial, you know, sort of, like you said, complicit in the whole project of uh, Western white colonialism, the oppression of women's another big one. Comes or up. convicts, for that matter, the poor, the poor convicts who stole a loaf of bread. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And were sent out here. In other words, that narrative too. Injustice. So it's interesting. I mean, it's as as we as as we've demonstrated, I think, in this conversation. I mean, it's ludicrous to try and tell the the story of Australian settlement without as though Christianity somehow just wasn't a factor, That's <laughs> and right. a major factor socially and and politically and I mean uh, intellectually. Just on that, one one thing we haven't talked about is just the um, massive influence of Christians and Christianity on social welfare and education. And I think today it's something like 80% of social welfare providers are Christian organizations. Disproportionately, it was clergy and it was Christian lay people, it was just concerned everyday Christians who have cared for the poor. They've been the ones that have cared for the marginalized and the poor. Uh, and those who have mitigated, you know, they're complicit, of course, in this whole project of empire and, and colonialism. But almost in every case, it's, it's Christians who have mitigated the, uh, the evils of empire, of colonialism, or of, you know, the imposition of uh, the states. Or uh, it's one thing I found with clergy, for example, Anglican clergy, they were uh, pastors and advocates for the convicts. Whereas they've been painted by Manning Clark and others as just part of the machinery of the state, handing out flogging uh, sentences to these poor convicts, keeping them under the thumb mm. as part of a kind of uh, project of social control. Um, so, I mean, that's another whole area. And, Not to and mention the Aboriginal protection societies that that's you mentioned right. before that uh, Advocacy, Christians uh, were, were trying to... Uh, you know, address some of the violence. That's right. The you look at the membership of those societies. They're, they're clergy and they're concerned, Christian lay people, in almost every case, um, and particularly at the elite levels of society as well. But the subscribers are, you know, your people in the pews as well. Now, I'm not, what I'm not trying to say is that only Christians have been virtuous and cared for the poor and been concerned, concerned for social welfare. That, of course, that's not the case at all. But disproportionately, it has been the impact of Christianity that has had that impact in terms of social welfare. I mean, you could also look at education as well, the commitment to education, uh, to the creation of uh, institutions in civil society, from Fairfax to uh, you know these great um, media companies. City Morning Herald is run by two committed Christians in the 1840s. They take it over. And um, there's influence in all of these different areas. So it's Christians who found literary societies and lending libraries, uh, you know, are involved in, in newspapers, in really this creation of civil society in Australia. I guess that's all more evidence of how ludicrous it is to say that this is founded as a secular society. There's, there's one historian whom I won't name, but I mean, you can read it in her book. She has this phrase in... This is in an Oxford History of Australia that, that 
that Australia is born modern. Just notes that it's born at a time of the Enlightenment in the 1780s, the French Revolution, where you had you know, a, a, an attempt to move away from Christianity, and just assumes in that moment that Australia is born modern. It's actually not. There are elements of modernity that, and the Enlightenment, as we've seen, that, it's, that it is born into, but actually it's born Christian as well in terms of you know, those influences coming from Christianity. And by that, I mean you know, a Christian nation, not, not individual faith, but you know, the impacts of Christianity on the legal system, on social and ethical mores, on culture. That's, I mean, that's another question too, because you know, if you're talking about uh, a nation, a Christian nation, you're also talking about a nation that has Christians in it. Yeah, and you course. can talk about the, you know, what's the percentage of Christians within that nation that would uh, make it a majority Christian nation. You know, and our censuses uh, enable us to make that argument. If you look at the census, although it is changing, of course, in recent yeah. censuses, but in 1922, 1921, sorry, the census has 96% of the population self-identifying as Christian. It's in the high 80s through right up to the 1950s. It's only, as I said, these hinge years of the 1960s that you start to see sort of a, a trickle beginning decline, but we're seeing a decline from that. I think our, this next census will be the first census where we have less than a majority Christian nation. But we have to remember, this has been a majority, even just on census statistics alone, this has been a majority Christian nation for the last 200 and 20 something years. We're only just starting to see that shift where perhaps I think, uh, I don't know if the numbers are being crunched yet, but I think, I suspect, we'll be under 50% yeah. for Christians in Australia this census. So Michael, this all brings me to a final question. And let me preface that question by summarizing the conversation actually, which is necessary in order to explain <laughs> the question. It seems very obvious that, one, you cannot tell the story of Australia without the word Christian, Christianity, church in there. Or religion more broadly. Or religion more broadly. Yeah. It, the point's not that Christianity has only ever been a force for good and no Christian ever did anything wrong. But the point is that Christianity is not incidental to the foundation settlement development of Australia it's integral as I think we've showcased here now given that and given that it seems you could argue that that is understood at least until the 1960s the question now forget the elite historians although maybe they are part of the answer here um, how is it that at the popular level assuming you agree with me there is such widespread ignorance that Christianity has this integral role in the story of Australia. Do you encounter this as a historian specialising in this? Do you count, encounter the kind of gross ignorance I sense is out there? I mean, there's a, there's a gross ignorance of Christianity full stop in terms of who Jesus was, what churches actually do. I imagine part of this must have something to do with the education system, which is certainly not really you could see why it's not really interested in sort of spending a semester on <laughs> the role of churches and clergy mm. in the uh civic political and social life moral spiritual life of of australia so it sounds like the historians have have, have started to make this 
this move, such that even non-Christian or non-believing, practicing historians can do what is not hard to explain. They see the evidence. You can't study. I imagine, I mean, where are you going to find records in sort of right up <laughs> through much of Australian history that don't touch on God? He's in the preamble to the Constitution after all and 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 was one of the participants in a funny way in the uh, Federation debates. That's right. And if you think about censuses through the 20th century, it's less than 1% of people nominate themselves as not having a religious belief of some yeah. kind. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a tiny percentage of so, Australian. What talk to me about this? I, I just want to get a bit of insight into this widespread ignorance. Now it, it's almost like we we, we are now kids are, are reared on a, a really quite a distorted um, view of Australian history because a, a really big part of it is missing, perhaps for ideological reasons. And again, I'm not I'm not I'm not suggesting mm. schools should just present this rosy picture of Christianity I mean by all means be critical but you can't even be critical if it's not in the story <laughs> yeah that's right isn't it something that if should it's... be discussed as one of the major formative influences on Australian culture and history yeah that's right you know it's it there's I think something like this is multi-pronged causally I think I, I can say a couple of things from my vantage point I think part of the problem is a more broader historical illiteracy People aren't uh, readers of history in the way that previous generations were, I think. And I find this when I'm talking to some of my undergraduate students. I can't assume that anyone has studied any kind of history. I have to start from a low base in terms of my assumptions. And of course, you know, some of my students will have PhDs in history and they're studying, you know, studying an extra degree. But by and large, there's, yeah, I, I guess there's less serious study of of academic history. People might, I mean, popular history is is prominent, but it tends to be on more kind of populist themes. So the biggest selling nonfiction in Australia is uh, on the First World War. If you write a book mm. on Gallipoli or something like that, then you're- You've got a guaranteed bestseller. That's right. If you're a, a Fitzsimons or a Carline, you know, then that is, that's where it sells. But the problem is when it's just those, those big popular topics, people don't have a sense of the broad sweep and movement of history. You get, and you get a kind of um, lopsided view of episodes in Australian history. I, I lived and studied in England for several years. And while I was there, I, I remember uh, there were complaints about education of uh, history in England, you know, to O-levels, to year 12. And all these teachers lamenting that all students came out knowing about was Henry and Hitler, basically. <laughs> Henry VIII and Hitler, yeah. you know, because these were immensely interesting and popular topics. Yeah. But they had no understanding around Henry or around Hitler. What happens in the yeah. thousands of years before there's and a little, in between? A little, little bit that happened in between. Yeah, I mean, there's some historical events that happen that would help you understand the rise of fascism and Hitler by the 20th century. So it's that that broader understanding, I think, has been lost. And and this was in in sort of curricula in secondary schools, for example, uh, in state schools where the majority of Australian students learn. Uh, you have little dots of history. It becomes like that, Henry and Hitler. You, you have so, you know, studies of society, environment. One term you're doing geography, you do a smattering of history here, a smattering of, uh, you know, climate science here or whatever, social studies, you know, which is a kind of applied secular sociology often and pretty bad uh, sociology at that. 
that's another discussion. So I think that's, that's broader problem with historical illiteracy. And a lot of people will get their history from documentaries and films. And, you know, I think, you know, the art of the documentary has been really significant um, over the last few decades. But also, you know, Hollywood, Hollywood and history, which tackles biopics and those kinds of films. And I, I worry Pic- that... Pictures some- now, Michael, that, that always say, you know, I don't remember the exact phrase, but it, they, they're effectively saying... This is a very loose, in in, in brackets, creative interpretation, um, interpretation right. of real events, and then you find out the only thing real was the was the sort of actual person, the name that of the based person, on, but but nothing based on actual events. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so, so that's a broader a broader problem, I think. And I mean, I, I would love to see people having more history in schools, um, in a way that where you got the broad sweep of history, say from year seven. To 12. I think there's a movement in towards that in the national curriculum. Although, you know, I haven't, uh, I'm not a secondary teacher, so I'm not really, really um, intimately acquainted with the, the national curriculum in relation to history. I've, I've you know, read a little bit on it in bits and pieces. So that's, that's part of the problem. But I think also you've got um, a religious illiteracy in Australia. And it's a similar kind of problem in the sense that people just don't encounter or study or seek to understand religion and it's not uh, really given to them in for example state schools again to use that example i went to state schools growing up from kindergarten to year 12. i can remember about two religious studies lessons in 13 years the only times religion were ever mentioned in my schooling Uh, and what that suggests is this kind of hidden curriculum that um, what's not discussed is not worth discussing. It doesn't really matter. Uh, so religion was never seen as anything worth studying. Whereas it's different, you know, in private schools, like an Anglican or a Catholic school, you have religion classes. You're mm-hmm. exposed to world religions. You learn about religion and spirituality. But I mean, uh, you know, uh, things may have changed since then. I grew up in the 80s and, and 90s. My schooling was in the 80s, mm. showing my age here. Um, but You're it was in good a, company. All oh, right, okay. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. It was a profoundly secular education. Yeah, I didn't yeah. come to I went Christ- to a state school as well, uh, pretty much right throughout the 80s. I did my um, primary school and, in Sydney. And the interesting thing is I also don't remember religion ever coming up in any kind of serious, concentrated way, except looking back, and this is kind of striking, we said the Lord's Prayer at assembly every week. Wow, yeah, we, we, <laughs> certainly, didn't, we certainly didn't do that. I can safely assume that's not done anymore, but that... In a way, that, that just shows you the legacy of, well, it's really a testament to the profound influence of Christianity that even in the 80s, right up until I finished year 12, and I think, oh, sorry, year, I, I finished year 6 in 1988, I think it was, saying the Lord's Prayer at this state school, which just shows how they had inherited these traditions that were probably self-evident. You know, a state school would say the the Lord's Prayer. Yeah. Before now, since then, I, I imagine we've gotten rid of all of these vestiges. And like I said, there there is a there's a sort of critical movement of secularist groups, and I've engaged some on Twitter actually, mm. who really want to see the Lord's Prayer ditched at Parliament at the opening of um, Parliament. So uh, I guess there there are forces actively working to crush whatever remnants yeah that's right you know there's a secularist association i think yvette barrial 
Minister of Education here in the ACT is a committed secularist and is part of the is online as you know part of the yeah. the secularist association with that kind of agenda. They the, to get religion out of schools to just relegate yeah. it to it's that that attempt to just relegate it to private life and you know you can do it but just don't yeah. bother anyone else. But with to, it. to come back to the point I've been driving at, okay, fine. There's there's a there's a debate there. I can even live with that, but. What seems criminal to me is to pretend to do Australian history, taking your point to the extent that Australian history is really even done per se. But to do that as though somehow Christianity is not a big part of the, the story, you don't need to be a Christian. Hmm. I mean, you know, does that or mean when, with any of it? Like, does yeah. when, when an atheist studies Roman history that because they're not a pagan, somehow they ignore the role of religion in Roman life? That That's would right. just and be you can't crazy. understand <laughs> Greco-Roman life without understanding its religious and spiritual beliefs and instincts. Yeah, you, and I mean, that, that just gets to a point I was going to just add to that comment about high school education or, you know, up secondary education. It's similar in the universities, I think. And of course, you know, it's the universities where journalists, teachers, where, you know, you're forming people that are, are going to be influencers in public life, uh, largely, although not exclusively, but uh, in the professions. And so when you've got that kind of secular narrative, in the universities then and in that formation of people if there's a strong secularist bent or even if it's not a, an overt agenda it's just this hidden curriculum that there's uh, it doesn't really matter so it's not much on offer um, or doesn't appear um, then I think that is forming people uh, with an ignorance of religious realities of the history of Christianity or other religions or Islam uh, for that matter you know the, the religious instinct, which uh, actually the vast majority of people who are alive today and have ever lived are religious in their worldview and in their commitments or, or have some kind of spiritual or religious commitment. Um, uh, just to give an example, I, I studied the uh, philosophy of history at ANU. I trained, did my master's work at ANU. And we, we spent several weeks, this is a semester long subject, studying uh, the history of philosophy up to the Greco-Roman world, we looked at Polybius and some of the prominent uh, historians, uh, Plutarch and you know, Plutarch's lives and those figures. Then we jumped from the Greco-Roman world to Hegel, to the Enlightenment, <laughs> and, to, you know, and a, to a kind of post-Enlightenment figure to the, to the 19th century, to uh, Hegelian idealism. And I, in the tutorial, I was a bit astounded by the structure of this subject because um, years before I had come to faith and I had, uh, I had discovered the, the riches of the Christian tradition, uh, which is really the Western tradition, reading Augustine, reading the City of God, probably the most influential philosophy of history mm. in the West mm. and set the template for thinking about history for about a thousand years yeah. and much else, you know, just war theory, all sorts of uh, uh, and theological ideas well beyond um, the theological to the political and social, as you would know as a, as a political theologian and um, political philosopher. Not to mention Aquinas, Grotius, yeah. some of the greatest medieval thinkers uh, about politics and about history. Uh, and I asked, my, I asked my tutor and lecturer, actually, why this had been, why, why was the course structured this way? And we had missed Augustine, one of the most important thinkers in the Western tradition. The answer was a kind of glib, oh, we just don't have time 
to cover everyone. But I noticed we had several weeks to cover Marx. We had several <laughs> weeks to cover Foucault and post-structuralist thinkers, all important, all important to understand. Yeah. But there was just this elision of Christianity. And it's, uh, to me, I mean, it didn't seem to be a coincidence that it was the, the profound thinking uh, in the West about Christianity and its influence philosophically, you know, from Christianity and Neoplatonism and that kind of fusion from the fifth century onwards. This was uh, to, you know, to Aquinas rediscovering Aristotle and, you know, that profound uh, synthesis in the medieval period completely ignored. And uh, to me, it was, it was kind of a symptom of this kind of secular myopia or perhaps intentional forgetting or myopia. Um, because you think about universities too, the large majority of lecturers of those who have positions within the university, particularly, you know, this, this long march through the universities from the 60s onwards uh, of those influenced by, say, neo-Marxism or forms of humanism, all sorts of non-Christian worldviews and ideologies, then it makes sense that, you know, your professors and those training uh, in the universities are going to be of that bent. And you know, as a result, my whole experience in university was one of uh, robust discussion and, and often disagreement with my, with my lecturers and tutors and fellow students, it should be said. I was often the only, um, I'm a committed Christian. I, be, I came to faith when I was about 19 and started to you know, construct a Christian worldview. But I quickly found that that came into uh, significant conflict mm -hmm. with a lot of my peers. So I think, you know, back to your question structurally, how is this forgetting happening? I think that is a part of it, a significant part of it. It's in education. And of course, you know, it's in the universities that your journalists, that your uh, influencers, I hate to use that word, it's become too trendy these days. Um, those who are having influence in public life, in public intellectuals, politicians and others, journalists, they are formed in that kind of secular context. And I think that helps to explain why there's, um, if it's just not a, a dislike, a hostility, sometimes it's just, a, uh, sometimes a, a, an ignorance actually. I find I read some journalism about Australian history or uh, imperial history or British history for that matter. And I'm often just appalled by the <laughs> historical illiteracy, the, you know, the, uh, the claims that are made that just don't match the evidence. Michael, um, like all historical subjects, and Australia is a young country, but not so young that we couldn't do a, a six-volume podcast on Australian <laughs> right. history if we wanted to we'll see you next go week. the Manning Clark, <laughs> Manning -Clark <laughs> route. So uh, I will bring it to a close and just say thank you. And thank you for sharing your exceptional knowledge. It's great that there are people <laughs> who bother to spend the time and you've really dedicated your academic career so far to to making sure that the particularly the religious the integral religious part of the Australian story is not forgotten amidst the culture that is doing a great job of just forgetting its history full full stop so yeah exactly whether that's a religious history or yeah other forms yeah. Other aspects so of all power to you and I and I, I do hope that there are there is a, another generation and then one after that that follows in your footsteps. I don't know if that's going to be the case, but you, you're probably training up some as we speak. So thanks so much for coming on the show and having this uh, much neglected but important conversation with me. Thanks, Jonathan. It's been a pleasure to be with you as well. <laughs>